Hello, lovely listeners. Now, before we get into today's show, I just wanted to tell you that Cyclist isn't just a podcast. No, Cyclist is also a beautiful print magazine. It's packed full of all the best rides from around the world, the newest bikes and kit, and loads of in-depth articles featuring guests just like on today's show. So head on over to cyclist.co.uk slash subscriptions and check out our latest Cyclist Magazine subscription offers. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, James Spender, and with me today is Will Strickson. For the first time, Will, you and I sharing the podcast hot seats together. How's it going? Yeah, I'm good. It's been it's been a long time coming. I've been waiting for this moment for since I began Cyclist Magazine almost three years ago. Goodness. Do you, were you listening to me before you began? Was I, was I around then? Did you think, oh, I can't wait to work with him one day? I was actually, but partially because, you know, when you're interviewing for a job, it's like, let's do some hard research. Let's pretend like I care. Yeah, so I was listening to you and Joe ramble on. Oh. In the early days of the podcast, the, Yeah, I mean, when, when our, we, that was, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't suggest anyone goes back and listens to those, but I've got fond <laughs> memories of having something to do in lockdown, at least. But today, we've got a pretty mega guest, pretty mega, I'm downplaying it. I was really excited when uh, Alex said he'd come onto the show, and that Alex is Mr. Alex Dowsett, who had a very long and illustrious career as a top pro, started off at um, Trek Livestrong, I believe even may have crossed paths with a certain Armstrong um, during that time, and wound up his career at, and you tell me what their name is, Will, because I always mess it up. Israel Premier Tech. Israel Premier Tech, which used to be Israel Startup Nation. Correct. And in between, was it Movistar and go and help me out? So he was Sky, yep. Movistar, Katusha. That's right. Which I think became Katusha Alperson, or was Katusha Alperson. I think that's correct. They all got the hair products. And then Israel ETC. There we go. So lots of teams, lots of wins, six-time national TT champion, two-time Giro stage winner, and probably, I don't know, I think you know, we'll find out when we talk to him. But Don't forget the hour record. Yeah, the, I was going to say, I think the hour record is probably up there with Alex's um, biggest, it's not really a victory, although you are beating time. So yeah, his biggest <laughs> victory. But before we move into that interview, I just wanted to say, Will, considering you've had three years really wanting to do this with me, why is there so much background noise? Why haven't you just found yourself a really silent place to do this? The problem is, James, some people have real jobs. And neither of us are those people. <laughs> so there are tradespeople in my house. Oh, okay. Right, no, fair, okay, fair enough. What are they doing? I know everyone wants to know. Decorating uh, our bedroom, actually. They're stripping wallpaper, which is very old. It's a nice William Morris wallpaper, actually, if you can picture and some uh, decorative I can. patterns. I can. Are they, do you think they're stripping it um, sensitively so that they can reuse it somewhere else as a kind of reclaimed wallpaper? Maybe. I think their family might be uh, getting that for Christmas, wrapped presents with wallpaper. <laughs> and, um, you know, just because this is a scintillating conversation, what colour are you going to paint in your bedroom? I don't, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> Look up somewhere on the Dulux colour chart, stick a finger on the map and it'll probably be right. It's not like Farrow and Ball, like elephant's breath. No, so what we've done is Farrow and Ball, but colour match it to a cheaper one. Ooh. So it's one of those somewhere. I hope you've gone for a Dulux Diamond. I wouldn't go Dulux Trade. Dulux Trade's alright, but Diamond does last longer and you only need one coat. We use uh, Johnston's of the uh, football 
paint Johnston's paint trophy thing. Johnston's paint trophy, which isn't actually a can of Johnston's paint because that would be good, cast in silver. That would be really good. Anyway, we should start talking about cycling um, and less about lower league football. Um, so without further ado, I would like to, or we would like to, wouldn't we, Will? We would love to welcome love to. Alex Dowsett to the show. So Alex, you're back in Essex and you've just come back from Andorra earlier in the year. That's quite a height difference, isn't it? Because I think Essex is something like, I don't know, 50 meters above sea level and then... Uh, at a push. <laughs> at a push, yeah, exactly. And that, that's if you go to the top of um, a, a, one of the climbs in Epping Forest and that's... And then Andorra is something like 2,000 meters on average above sea level. How, how's your body changed, for one thing, going from altitude down to sea level? I'm a much better cyclist down here, that's for <laughs> sure. And, and, and Strava would, would dictate the same, but that's probably more down to the, the riders that exist in Andorra versus the riders existing in Essex. In Andorra, I didn't challenge a single Strava segment. Um, oh, no, I did challenge one. There was like a bypass through a tunnel, which, unbeknown to me, I thought everyone used the bypass because you weren't allowed to use the tunnel. So I went round the bypass took the Strava segment. I was like, oh, that's a surprise. But it turns out that's just the sort of take your clothes off and go for a wee stop for all of the all of the pro riders sort of leaving Andorra to head down onto the flatter roads. And every, if you're not stopping, you just go through the tunnel. So I now have that. I have a Strava segment, KOM in Andorra. Um, whereas in contrast in Essex, the highest climb, I am the proud owner of the Strava KOM up there at two minutes, 50 something. You're officially a climber. In, in Essex, everyone's a climber. <laughs> so do you find, are you, are you still riding? I mean, obviously, I'm sure your actual training volume has gone down a lot and you might not even call it training anymore. I don't know. But are you still riding your bike a lot? So for, you know, for, for listeners who, you know, everyone knows Alex Dowson, just to make that, that point, you retired from the World Tour last year. But you're still getting out of your bike. I've seen a lot of new bikes coming from you as well that you've bought yourself personally on Instagram. Yes. Um, no, a big change. I'd say my training volume is, is uh, halved, sometimes less. It, when I stopped, I had a probably five or six months where I did not touch the bike whilst I was still in Andorra. I, I skied. I enjoyed life. I enjoyed not being a cyclist. Um, and then when I did move back to... The thing is with Andorra, it's a great place to ride a bike if you are fit. If you are unfit... It's the worst place in the world to be a bike rider. So I had, a, I had a good winter. And then when I got back to Essex, I did, I started riding the bike again. And, you know, I've kind of realized there are things that people would say to me that I didn't understand about sort of being a, a cyclist, but not a professional cyclist. Like, um, one of them would be, or perhaps not just cycling, people would say, I have to exercise in the morning to feel energized for the rest of the day. Like exercising gives me energy. And I'm like, ah, it doesn't make any sense. Because I think for the last, I don't know, 20 years, I've exercised to the point where I am unable to function as a human for the rest of the day. You know, sofa bound, just, you know, overly tired. And, you know, since, since getting back, I, I have, you know, I, I went through that transition of realizing actually there is, there's something in this. Um, most of those people were right. And I've, I think cycling, I've, I did some running. And I'll say, like, running is very efficient. 
that you can really kick the crap out of yourself in 25 minutes, whereas 25 minutes on the bike isn't really worth, well, historically for me, it's not worth getting kitted up for. So I think running was very time efficient, but I've really enjoyed more the social side to cycling and just knowing with, with trying to keep weight off, like my calorie burn rate on a bike is is high. So I think that for me has been an effect, very efficient way of, sort of trying to keep weight off. And and I haven't done much road racing this year. Like any bunch stuff has been mainly gravel. And what I did do one road race in Goodwood and I enjoyed very much just being in the same peloton as some of my best mates. And that's, you know, there's best mates that aren't like pro bike riders. I think they enjoyed that too. So I, I've definitely gone through this transition of um, discover, re, rediscovering a love for cycling in, in a different way. So I'm just going to sort of like take that and jump straight into the fact that you've just written or released Bloody Minded, uh, which is published by Bloomsbury and available in all good bookshops and online. And in that, I would suggest that towards the end of your career, so you finished up with Israel Startup Nation, that what you just said then is you're really enjoying cycling now. And at the end of your world tour career, would it be fair to say you weren't really enjoying cycling? And if so, why Why was that? Um, no, I, I, I enjoyed aspects to it. Like, and there's bits I miss now. Like, I loved teammates, like the, the bus, the, the dinner table at stage races. The I, I miss... Rick Zabel and Matthias Brandley and the, and the dynamic we had, I miss that greatly. But I don't miss the, it's like, like the ongoing stress of, I think, you know, for the first half of my career, I was, yeah, I was good. I was as good. And then I'd say the second half, I was trying to, I was like chasing it, trying to remain good um, and having to really, you know, just, you know, you sacrifice a lot as a pro bike rider all through your career. But the, the, certainly the second half, it becomes this all consuming drive to, to just to just to remain in the game and, and you know when the game has moved to you know understandably it's not a complaint at all but to young riders and I think when you get to your mid-30s you start you you become you're employed through experience and then post Remco there's this step change where teams like well actually we don't that experience isn't valued like it used to be and, and we want children. That's what we want now. I, you know, completely understand. You look at uh, Remco Pogaccia and Josh Tarling this year as an, as an example. It's it's you know it's right. It, I just yeah, and then with a family and a little girl and um, the stress of contracts. Was, it, it wasn't. There was elements to it that were not fun at all. And and then racing. I, I guess get gaining a far wider knowledge of how much equipment can hold you back and knowing that you're, you're rocking up to races with a hand or two tied behind your back and knowing that you you cannot be competitive. Even if you punch out all the numbers in the world and ride a perfect race, there are there are limitations. But that, that, that's, you know, I'm not the only one, was by far not the only one in that boat. There's very few riders in the pro peloton that look at their whole setup and go, this doesn't get better. I'd actually say there's almost none, but I think there's elements of my setup at times which were it's it's a waste of time pushing hard in the time trial because Ghana couldn't win on on some of the setups that we had, and that that makes it a very 
sort of unenjoyable existence when you you punch out a ride that you know is good you sat there doing the maths and going well that would equate to this result if the setup was different and that that I found challenging and have since you've started racing in a different way under your own steam have you sort of enjoyed having a bit more freedom of your own equipment or does it not really make a difference because you're not like world tour now no I I mean I, I time trialed a fair bit this year and I like I enjoy my time trialing I always have and it's been yeah, quite the contrary. I've actually, with Nopin's, been at the, I feel like, the forefront of finding some significant performance increases off of like, pre-existing high-end uh, or high-performing like, skin suits and overshoes. So yeah, it, we've gone the other way. And, and certainly when it comes to the TT setup, it's I, I have loose sponsorship with Specialized. It's, they're, they're very sort of flexible like this year i time trialed on a scott the whole year uh, a scott triathlon bike and that was that was a phenomenal piece of kit next year i'll be on a shiv which is another phenomenal piece of kit and it's been really enjoyable to like you know rock up to the national 10 finish third long way off a of first but like a, a nat's hair off a second and go well the only problem here was me because like the suit the overshoes the helmet the um the bike that was all on point. So there's there's something it's quite a bit more enjoyable than than uh than sort of knocking out knocking a bike ride out the park and, and looking at a result going, that could have been better if it hadn't been for X, Y, and Z that was actually outside of my control. I think that's like will come as quite a surprise to a lot of people, a lot of cycling fans, that not so much that equipment can hold you back because you know, most people are all sort of, you know, we've all ridden that wave now of understanding or getting to grips with how important aerodynamics is and feeling that in the bikes that we ride ourselves. It's not just at the World Tour. But the idea that an outfit that has budgets of tens of millions can provide its riders with significantly poor kit that will then undermine those riders' abilities to actually win any races. It's a bit like it would just seem completely mental to think of messy in his heyday saying yeah i could have been way better if my boots were better it's like well just get yeah. some better boots and obviously you know we all understand that sponsors you're bound into sponsors contracts but just from your point of view as a rider like kind of how can that be to the point where you can show your boss numbers and this is something um that you recount in, in bloody mind you know going to teams and saying here's the data change this thing for us please and we will win how can it be that those things don't get changed um how long have you got? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's team dependent. I think sometimes you have management has to see it first and and understand it. And the, the, the problem there's so many like facets to to going fast to bike riders going fast. And and if the team doesn't have an engineer, a dynamicist in its management setup, then those those noises and, and that that was the case with one of the teams I was with. Those noises aren't gonna be made loud enough and and so when you've got a physiologist say that's in charge of tech and r&d that's going to lean more towards you know the kind of acknowledge that that exists but not to the same extent and then there is the case of how beholden to the sponsors is the team and that's that i understand is tough i i've i had this battle with it was the katusha which is a clothing brand that doesn't exist anymore it's a wonderful clothing brand but we had a slow time travel suit and they they really I said, look, I can get 
no pins to make our TT suits and they'll be fast and they'll have Katusha logos on it. And they said, no, we can't. Like, they have to be Katusha suits. And I was like, we have Tony Martin in this team and he is the current reigning world champion. And he hasn't won a race since he's joined this team. He hasn't even like featured in the top. And he's got the world champs bands around him. I was like, what, like, what would you rather that could like the logo is on the top step of the podium or like your suit is outside the top 20 because that can be the difference. And they, they dug in and it was that, that to me, that to me didn't make sense. Cause I, you know, if TT suits aren't part of your armory, like clothing brands farm out TT suits when TT suits are not their thing. If they're like a lifestyle, a lifestyle cycling brand, the R and D needed to make a competitive TT suit is huge. So in my mind, it was like we're better off, like whack your logo, get the design on a TT suit that someone else has spent hundreds of thousands developing. We know it's going to be fast. And then you've got bike riders who are going to be at the game. And, and I'd say probably 90, 95% of people watching are looking at the guy standing on the podium going, well, that's, you know, that's the logo that's on the suit. So that must be the suit. Um, so, yeah, there's one is how beholden to the sponsors. Yeah, and I think just whether the team is forward thinking enough. And it's like that like results are so important. It's so important. And often I think that gets amazingly, I, th- I just think that gets forgotten sometimes. And I've been in a team that's downward spiraling and, and you, you get a lack of results. And then I know the sponsors come in and they're like, but you haven't done well. So here's a bit less money and here's a little bit more requirement from us um like we need you to we want you to sign these riders who perhaps wouldn't be considered otherwise we need you to use this equipment i i I have sat in a room where a sponsor has gone we need you to use this equipment and we've gone it's slower and they've got yeah we know but we don't mind if you lose one more race a year because of it and we're like dumbfounded but then the following year they're like you didn't do very well so like that that deal's going to get worse again and it's it's this downward spiral. I remember it's like Team Sky back in 2010 or 11, they bucked that trend right from the bat. They said, I think it was they had a sponsor in Shimano, said Shimano wheels aren't good enough. So until they are, we're going to use head wheels. Like half the team will be on heads, half the team will be on Shimano's. And then Shimano make wheels that are good enough. And, and even then, they still use lightweights at certain times and, and they're still... They won races and they became they became this like Shimano doesn't sponsor teams, but they sponsored Team Sky, who had the audacity to say, Your kit's not good enough, we're not going to use all of it. And then you've got other teams who are like, Please, Shimano, will you sponsor us? And they say no. There's like winning is is so important. And I think, yeah, your dream scenario is is one like UAE, one like um Jumbo Visma, where title perhaps yeah, Ineos as well, where the title sponsorship isn't sort of cycling focused where you'd like to think someone like Jim Ratcliffe looks at Ineos and goes, you know, I don't really care what bike that rider is riding so long as they're first across the finish line. So um, like that, that's dream scenario. And I, yeah, there's a lot more to it than that, but I think sometimes the, the main focus of winning bike races gets lost. And I spent a lot of time trying to gather data to show teams that like we are, we're sometimes racing with one hand tied behind our back. Sometimes out of choice, like things like uh, aero road helmets versus 
ventilated road, road helmets and sprinters sprinting. I would, uh, no, it's it road race skin suits actually, like persuading sprinters to use road race skin suits instead of me just saying it's faster. They're like, oh yeah, but comfortable ventilation and that. I, I ran a wind tunnel test where I put, put a very good road race skin suit on versus a mediocre one. Got, and, and made sure the results were in a form that sprinters would understand because I think often saying it's it's ten watts faster or it's three percent fast it's three percent better like that that goes over a lot a lot of people's heads because they don't they don't you're like yeah like what does that mean so I just went well over two hundred meters at seventy k an hour it's one and a half meters difference then you see the sprinter's eyes just light up they're like you mean to say that if I start my sprint and someone else in this skin suit starts their sprint. And we do like 200 meters. I will be one and a half meters further ahead. I'm like, that is exactly what it means. And I'm like, ah, because they've all lost the race by less than that. Yeah. And then they put the skin suit on. Either that or then, uh, if that doesn't work, I deliver the ultimatum. I'm like, if you don't do it, I'm not going to lead you out. And they're like, what do you mean? It's like, well, if you're not interested in winning, I'm not interested in helping you. <laughs> do you think that's sort of the opposite problem with someone like Movistar who seemingly didn't care that much, but actually got results anyway. So why change the system that kind of isn't that great? I, th- I think, yeah, Movistar was a fascinating one. Like, certainly when I joined them, it was like you had one team which had done things the way they've always done it, and it, it's successful. And, and I think there's a certain element of that, pure speculation with Ineos at the moment, in that they, what Ineos did when they joined, when they were Team Sky, is they took the rule book, ripped it up, said, we're going to rethink everything. We're going to, like, e- everything we thought we knew about cycling, we're going to question everything and do things uh, in the way that we think they should be done to win bike races. And then they won. They won loads, you know, like, highly successful. The, funnily enough, Movistar were the one big thorn in their side for, like, 13, 14, and 15. And Movistar couldn't have been more opposite. But, I think they were successful for different reasons. Um, the mentality uh, within the team was far bigger than I had given it credit for. Lack of ego in Movistar. I mean, the time trial, the team time trial in Movistar was phenomenal because it was it was chaotic, it was disorganized, but it it worked. And I think there was in that very low pressure environment at Movistar, and it was low pressure like every time it was TT day. And, in which was my day in Movistar, in the morning, everyone would be like, hey, Alex, we reckon you're going to win today. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. And then, you know, probably wouldn't. And then at the end of the day, it'd be like, ah, well, it didn't go your way. Maybe it will next time. It'll probably go your way next time. And that was, um, yeah, I think there was something wonderful in that mentality, which really, in that and, and within Movistar as well, like everyone was an equal like everyone, management, staff, mechanics, swaneurs, there was no hierarchy. Like you join the team, Valverde, Quintana, whether you like them or dislike them, as people, they treated everyone the same. Like whether you were the German Neo Pro, like a rider experienced or a team doctor, everyone was treated the same. And I think there was something quite wonderful in that, in that mentality there. But going back to what I was saying before, I, I think speculating, Ineos have, is like this ebb and flow. And, and Ineos, I don't think, have fallen behind. I just think they've been overtaken by UAE and Jumbo, who have basically done what Ineos did five, ten years ago. Except they're rethinking everything that kind of Ineos has, has set a benchmark. I think perhaps Ineos need 
a bigger crisis point because maybe they're going, well, this is how we won all these Tour de France's with Wiggins and Chris Froome and, and this isn't working now. So at some point we need to rethink that. But that must be the hardest thing in the world to look at the way that you dominated cycling and go, well, actually, that was that was wrong. We can we can do much better than that and, and rethink everything. So I think they'll, they'll return to the top, I'm sure. Well, they've got about 20 riders they need to sign in about a week. So see how that goes. <laughs> So, I mean, they need to keep Josh Tarling. Well, I guess they will, will be keeping Josh Tarling um, and Pidcock because, I mean, they've, they've really, and Carlos Rodriguez have really uh, sort of propped up the team this year, I guess. Obviously, with a load of support, but that, yeah, those three riders have excelled, hey? Have you spoken to Tarling much this season, given him any advice? No, no. No, I mean, I think in about three months, he's achieved more than I did in my whole career. So <laughs> I... Um, I, I'm on a book tour at the moment with Michael Hutchinson and I said, uh, yeah, Josh Tarling, when I heard that he was quite good as a junior, I was like, ah, it'll just be one of these like slightly overgrown, you know, hit puberty a bit early, just naturally stronger than anyone. Wait till he hits the big league, he's going to get found out there. And I was very wrong. I'm happy to be wrong because he's a, he's a really nice kid and he's clearly very, very good. And Michael said he had a similar, went through a similar kind of process with a very young me. <laughs> so do you, do you keep your kind of, um, I guess you keep up with your old colleagues, you know, although the, the peloton is full of competing teams, that is, you know, that's the, the cliche of it's the office for you guys. These are your colleagues. And we've all left jobs before where you go out for Friday drinks and you all shake hands. You go, oh, it's great working with you. Yeah, I can't. Well, we're, just because we've stopped working together, we'll still be friends. And then you never really talk to those people again. It's, has that been a bit of your experience? Or are you still really quite in there in terms of, you know, you're still on the WhatsApp groups and you're still watching the races and you're still maybe getting phoned up by a rider saying, hey, Alex, I need to go faster. And they've given me a stupid set of TT bars. <laughs> what should I be buying? Um, yeah, there's been the odd... odd question around tt kit that i get which is nice um i think i have I, I garnered a certain reputation even within the world tour that i didn't realize until talking to Matteo mohoridge one day where he assumed that i would know just by looking at him exactly what his cda was <laughs> i just went with it i was like yeah yeah point two three on the tt bike maybe a bit better on your road bike and so i just, just rolled with it um no, there's there's a few there's a few chaps that I I stay in touch with. You know, Rick Brandley and I have a WhatsApp group, which you know it doesn't very sporadically we chime in and and we don't ask how each other are. It's just more of an opportunity to Mickey out of mainly Matthias. Um, and then you know, and Rick Zabel and I are both in the for want of a better word influencer space, so we all help each other out at times as well there and. Uh, yeah, otherwise, yeah, Mullen, Nathan Haas a fair bit as well. Mullen sort of tapped me up for a bit of TT help every once in a while. Um, I mean, his biggest issue is he's got massive shoulders, which it's not much I can do about that. So, yeah, and, and I keep, I do keep up to speed with it. You know, I like, I like cycling. I like the racing. Yeah, I'll be, I will be very excited when Olympics next year comes round, even though it was one of the big things that I, you know, tried to and missed in my career. So, but yeah, there there is an element of 
some riders you thought you were great mates with and then yeah you realize you're probably it's a circumstantial friendship and it was a great friendship but it's not one that exists across well continents potentially australians new kiwis americans that have gone very well with them yeah don't know how that will go forward still still getting there i mean like rowan dennis and i i'd say communicate the most but we don't talk we just send each other memes on instagram <laughs> but that is our conversation history he came to my wedding a couple of weeks ago and it was like oh what do we what do we talk about <laughs> and you just showed each other your phones in silence yeah <laughs> well forgive me this a bit of a tenuous question um just picking up on something you know talking about this idea of keeping up with some old colleagues or not again in bloody minded you talk about your time at katusha and katusha at that point you were riding with marcel kittel and you were kind of there as mm. you were part of his well you were the, his lead out guy right and kittel was the hottest property going into katusha for mm. sprinters and as you point out you know they threw so much at the guy um they gave him an amazing setup um, to be able to train at altitude and a huge salary, something, you know, 1.2 million pounds a year or something. And he kind of imploded and then he left mm. and he left very abruptly mm. with your team as well. There's a, you recount a WhatsApp message that he just sends the group, which is basically like, in a minute, guys, I'm going to announce that I'm going to leave officially. Um, bye. And then 30 minutes later, he announces he's left. What happened to him? Do you keep up with like, what happened with Kittle? And do you, does anyone in cycling know? What happened, you know, post retirement, and what led up to precipitated the the desire to leave? Ah, oh, Kittel was it was a tough one. I, I think tough. I, I think Marcel is is incredibly strong, like a, an absolute specimen. I, I had the misfortune of doing a ramp test next to him in Katusha, and they measure our black blood lactates. His doesn't go up, like it just doesn't move, and and. We both got to sort of high 400s, start dipping into 500s. I then bow out with a blood lactate of like 15 or something, and I'm, I'm done. His blood lactate is still at four. <laughs> and it, but then he like bows out. But he's just like his physiology of sprinters is so different. Yeah. I mean, I had one, I roomed with Marcel in, in Bink Bank Tour, and we, just, we had a wild like three days in terms of his, um, I'd say his headspace. And, and I think that was the, the pressure of being like the guy to save really a whole team. Like that is an, enough. Uh, that's a lot. That is a lot for when you've got 30 guys, jobs, 30 bike riders, jobs, and then more stuff riding on your ability to win bike races. That's a huge amount of pressure. And I, yeah, I, I think the sprinters generally, I do not envy their level of pressure they have because they have to make split-second decisions to win bike races. And it, it's very, in some ways, tougher than winning mountaintop finishes on GC because there you are out and out strongest. Like here, you have to be aggressive, but not overly aggressive. You have to puff your chest out. You, you have to have an ego as well as a sprinter and command command your position in the final 10k so i didn't envy the pressure marcel had and i think that is that's what got to him that bink bank tour was wild the first stage we we struggled with brakes rim brakes at katusha there was a there's an issue with the, the the brakes that were on the air road so in the rain we struggled big time with with stopping 
Um, we actually contributed it to a very strong performance in a wet Strada Bianca once by one of the riders because he couldn't stop. <laughs> um, and yes, it rained in Bink Bank. I was road captain. I was checking on Marcel and all day he was good. He was good. Uh, we were sat in the top 20 most of the day and to the point where he's like, Alex, stop asking. Like, I'm fine. Like, this is all good. And I was like, great. Like, we've, we've got a, we've got a Marcel that's, uh, on the money today. And then, 10k before the finish, I looked behind and he was gone. I was like, That's weird. It's been on my wheel for the last 180k. Where's he? Where's he gone? So I dropped back and I dropped back to the last wheel, and and there he is. And I was like, "You good?" He went, like, oh, uh, "This is just. I can't do this. This is a nightmare. I can't. I can't even stop the bike. Like this is the brakes don't work and and whatnot." Um, I was like, "Okay, well the finish is four kilometers, like arrow straight." So. I don't think there's, you're not going to need them that much, but you know, no pressure. If you don't want to, if you don't want to sprint, we'll go with Zabel and, uh, yeah, we'll go from there. And then we turn on to like 4K to go and he comes up next to me. He's like, ah, I think I'll sprint. I was like, okay, well, there's nothing I can do for you from here because I, I have not got the power to get you from last position to first in 4K in the final 4K of a bunch sprint of Bing Bang. He's like, no, no problem, I'll do it. He then just carved his way through the peloton and ran second in the bike throw to Fabio Jakobsen. I, I've never seen anything like it. And then we had the next day in the TT, it's a 15-minute TT, and he rolls in and we're all comparing numbers. And I'd, I'd done an all right ride. And he was like, oh, I averaged 500 for 15 minutes. I was floored. I was like, hey, mate, that is so much power. Uh, he was, and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, no, it's, but that's about right." And then, but then the next day, it was like nothing had changed. But then the next day, he had a bike change with uh, like fifteen k to go, and I tried to move him to the front. And every time I'd go over four hundred watts, he'd be like, "Easy, easy, easy." And I'm like, "Mate," and I, and I just think he was like, from pure speculation. I just think the pressure that he was under from from the team, and they did the best they could, but. You know, it's a results-based business. I think he did well at Quickstep because he was one of many bike race winners. And that, you know, Katusha, he was him, him and Inyo Zakarin, who was the most laid-back guy in the world, who would kind of just like disappear and then pop up and win a stage of the Giro or something. Um, yeah, Marcel just, I, I, I think he struggled with the, with the pressure and I sympathize with that greatly. Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is... A very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it, because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version, so it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40k in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now. When you're thinking about 
how you think about kit and stuff, do you think that comes from the fact that you sort of had to do a lot of things independently? You kind of had to seem like you had to course correct quite a lot away from a team's methods to be like, no, this is what works for me. I'm going to go and do it. And then you win. Yeah, I mean, I think there was two two things at play there. One was the, the fact I stayed in the UK, um, whereas a lot of pros moved to Girona and, and Andorra and, and whatnot. I stayed in the UK, and, and each pro has their like their test. So I think in Girona, a lot of them use Rocca Corba to go and see where their form's at. Um, I used the Molden 10, Club 10-mile TT course, and it's kind of a running joke that me gaining a sub-19 minute 10 round the Molden 10 has been as important as winning world tour races. And, and an element of that is true, but that's been my testing ground. And, and part of that's been fitness, but it's also been like my wind tunnel. It's been my testing out pacing strategies with different wind conditions, different weather conditions. Like I, you know, no, no one takes a photo at the Molden 10, so I take different sets of kit down, see what's fast, what isn't fast. Um, and I think I learned, learned an awful lot about how to go fast there how to because suddenly it wasn't and so many time trialists are so i I actually think power meters have slowed a lot of time trialists down because there's a lot like if i do high power i will get a fast time and that isn't always the case sure it helps it helps a lot but a pacing strategy will trump power output a lot of the time and i learned that so i think that was the first part of that puzzle the second was the hour record the first one where i really is sort of like what i said Earlier, when you go to a sprinter and you say, oh, this suit's going to make you 5% faster. No one really, it's, it's difficult. Sometimes that goes over a lot of people's heads. Sometimes like, oh, it's just 5%. And I remember I was talking to Ryan Mullen about skin suit. And, you know, Ryan's not stupid at all. And I said to him, I was just 5% gain in a suit. And he's like, well, what does that mean? Like, what does 5% mean? And I was like, it means I need to do 400 instead of 420. He's like, really? Like, yeah. Five percent. I think there's this, and so with the hour record, because you ride into a schedule. If someone comes in and goes, "Here's a suit that's ten watts faster," what that means is like what that means in a time trial is you're going to still push as hard as like you're going to do everything the same. You're just going to finish a few seconds earlier. Whereas in an hour record, it just means you're going to do ten watts less. And my first hour record attempt was so like cruisy because of all of these things that we've. Like all of these little marginal gains like, that have added up have brought that down. I was like, this is huge. And then just after the I record, there was, I, it's a story I've told it a lot because it's, it's a good one. It's with Mark, a very young Mark Solaire from UAE. He, uh, we time trialed in Turrigan Runfart, um, both on Mobistar. He came up to me afterwards. He was like, Alex, do you mind if I ask you about your time trial? I said, short sure, Mark. He said, uh, he said, the first thing, is, Spanish, he's like, how heavy are you? I was like, oh, I'm 78, 78 kilos at the moment. He's like, oh. And he said, well, I'm 70. Good. I said, how much power did you do? I said, 395 watts. What about you? He said, oh, 400. And you see, and like, the, the Spanish, they work in watts per kilo for just about everything. He's like, this isn't computing because I beat him by two and a quarter minutes. And he goes, uh, he said, oh, he said, well, that doesn't make sense. I said, well, let me, let me ask you about this one section in the course that was a, we're up on a sort of plateau and then it was a descent into a climb. I said, how, uh, how much power were you doing on the downhill? It was like 400 watts. I said, cool. And how fast were you going? It's like 60K an hour. I said, cool. And on the uphill? 
like, how much power are you doing? He's like 400 watts. I was like, okay. I said, let me tell you what I was doing. On the downhill, and this is when it was allowed, I was sat on my top tube. I was doing zero watts and I was doing 70 kilometers an hour. So I was doing 400 watts less than you were and I was going 10 kilometers an hour faster. Then on the uphill, I was doing 500 watts because I could. And what happened? So if we're going to go in watts per kilo, like I'm beating you there on watts per kilo as, as, and I've beaten you on speed. So my rate of de- deceleration on the climb is, has started from a higher speed and it's decelerating at a lesser rate because I'm putting out more watts per kilo than you are. So, and then when we get to the top, I'm having to re-accelerate from a higher speed than you already are. It's like the differences there are biblical. And that's, yeah, that, that's, that's the Molden 10 has a descent into a climb. It's not as big as this one, but it's the same, same principles apply. So given the way that you can just deconstruct stuff like that and also re-explain it to our listeners and to, well, more to the point, to other, other riders, do you think that there's a future for you being an advisor to a team, being in a role that you needed potentially when you were at Katusha or Israel Startup? Um, maybe. Being Dan Bigham. <laughs> no, I mean, Dan's, Dan is... Um, Dan took it to another level. I, you know, I have no shame in saying that Dan, 2019 National Time, time Trial Championships, Dan, John, and th- their whole team rocked up and, and almost beat me at my own game. Like, and, and now they can beat me at my own game. And that's however forward thinking I thought I was, they took it to another level like, successfully. And I, I worked with Dan on a couple of World Team Time Trial Championships. Um, the mixed relay, uh, or just one of them. Yeah, one or two of them. And I worked with Dan at the Sub-7 uh, triathlon project last year. And the guy is mind-blowing. What he can do with a spreadsheet is incredible. And how accurate it translates into real life is is, is pretty mind-blowing. So, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, maybe I would have to, uh, you know, I'd worry about me being a pain in the ass saying, well, this isn't faster. And that, that whole the, the sponsor thing. but. Yeah, I'd like to think I have enough common sense to to do that. I think, yeah, possibly, possibly. And I would enjoy it as well, so long as I, I don't want to do the DS thing. I don't want it sort of morphing into that because I spent an awful lot of time away from home as a pro bike racer and I'm enjoying not spending a lot of time away from home now. So, yeah, and, and, and DS is it's, it's an important job. It's a very good job, but... It's one that involves more time away from home than I as as a pro bike rider, and I, that isn't just isn't something I want to do. But yeah, something in the TT capacity. I mean, I kind of I have that a little bit from a, a distance with no pins because we we do sort out a lot of kit for a lot of world tour riders. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier, with sort of, I get you call it white label TT kit. We do that, and I'm often the go between between the pro and and no pins getting it getting it organized and getting it over the line. So, um, yeah, maybe in the future, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with where I'm at at the moment. So could you sort of describe, you know, how would you put your resume together now in terms of where, because I feel like, I was saying this to Will um, before we came on, you're one of the most famous cyclists that Britain's ever produced. And to my mind, in the sport, you know, in, in the, from the English-speaking perspective, and there are other people who have had, say, a longer career than you, or there are other people that have won different things to you. But there's something about you that's, I don't know, you're, you're just quite clearly quite a special human being. But how do you translate that into 
Alex kind of 2.0 or 3.0? Like, what's your, what's your business plan now? Because I figure it must be such a big bump to come down from this, this place where not even, you know, everything is structured for you, but like you've got, you've got very, very clear goals every single day when you get out of bed, you know what you've got to do. And now suddenly you're your own manager and you have to set your own goals. Like how's, you know, how have you kind of dealt with that? And where, do, where are you now and where do you want to go with that? I, it's been hugely difficult. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I Nettie Edmonds, this, not this time, this time last year? No, earlier than this time last year, I was chatting with Annette Edmonds and the track rider. And I was saying, you know, I think I'm, uh, no, I am stopping. I said, I haven't announced it yet, but I, I'm, I'm like 99% sure I'm stopping. I said, but I'm nervous because you know, I need to, you know, I can't sit back, you know, use the return retirement lightly. I still need to work. And so I'm quite worried because I didn't have, you know, I, I broached the idea with a few possible roles for, for now this year. And, and it was a, it was like a chicken and the egg scenario where it was a case of where you need to actually retire. So I needed to do that. And, and Annette said, look, don't worry, you'll be all right. That's the first thing. You'll be fine. Did you be amazed some of the stuff that comes your way? Really very surprised. She said, my advice is to say yes to everything. And then after a year or two, work out what you enjoyed, what you didn't enjoy, and then go and then and go from there. And, and yeah, she was she was bang on the money. She was she was right. And I've said yes to a lot of things, and some of it I've enjoyed. Enjoyed some of it I haven't. Some of it I've looked like five years down the line. What does this job look like? Is it good? Is it bad? I've made decisions. But one thing I know, I've been spread a bit too thin. I've done a lot lot of things like quite well but not as well as I would have liked and so I think next year is about sort of streamlining a lot of it yeah and I, I know I've loved the work with no pins that next year we're sort of taking that up a notch which is good so yeah Alex 2.0 I don't know I mean the, the book stuff it, there's still there is still an element of feeling my way into into these things I've had a like one little request for commentary and that's not something I considered because Mainly because everyone that does it at the moment does it so well. Like the all the Adam, Dan Lloyd set up, they are so good at it. It's like well, that's 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 a saturated market, and that's okay. So yeah, we're we're still still working it out a little bit, if I'm honest. I mean, we've got the YouTube, I've got my coaching company, and I'm enjoying my coaching company. With that's been bubbling away for the last five years, and now like, I'm doing a lot more coaching. I, I think the one thing I do know is I enjoy helping other people go faster and get, and get better. I get a buzz out of that. I, enjoy, we, I helped Indy Lee, the triathlete in the wind tunnel, uh, a couple of months ago, and we're finding some, some pretty big gains, and she's a laugh, and, and you know, I, I, I get a kick out of that. So I think whatever it is I'm doing, as long as it's – I'd like to think it's helping, it's helping other people go faster. I think that's, that's what's important to me. And of course, you're going to take credit for Mohoric's Gravel Worlds win because you told him his CDA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm amazed he didn't thank me in the post-race press. <laughs> <laughs> How has uh, racing go been? Obviously, you sort of started doing mountain bikes before. So how has going from the road to gravel been? Is it fun or do you just want to win still? I want to win. I do want to win. I haven't enjoyed not winning. And that is as a result of uh, a winter of skiing and drinking, I think. I don't regret it, but I also... National 100. I did the National 100 this year. Like a CTT 
national title still eludes me. And that's like, uh, as a kid, that's what I really wanted to win. Just one of them. And I lost the national 100 by 25 seconds, quarter of a second a mile, which is less than an aero socks difference. Um, <laughs> that hurt. So, but the gravel has been, uh, the gravel has been good fun. I understand why it exists. I think it's for, and I think a lot of people won't like me. I think it's for road riders that aren't good enough off-road to do mountain biking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) On the basis that when I entered gravel races, I thought in terms of technical ability, I was going to be way out of my depth, and I was not. So so I did the Gralock, which was the UCI one early in the year. I mean, my, my... I realized there as Nathan Haas asked me to, he's like, hey, do you want to do the gravel? I was like, yeah, sure. I need to do some gravel. May as well throw myself in right at the deep end. And he's like, cool. Um, can you drive me there? <laughs> yeah. He's like, do you mind driving me to the airport afterwards as well? I was like, right, I'm your swanure. That's why I'm doing the gravel, isn't it? But that, that was great fun. And I understood the whole, like, the vibe. Yeah, that's a word that's used a lot in gravel. I was like, I got that. I think I enjoyed more the, I did Grit Fest this year, which is over in Wales. I think the first thing I enjoyed was that went there with the camper van, Chanel and Juliet, and it was in a phone signal black hole. So we were you know, off comms for a weekend, which doesn't happen often. And that's, um, enjoyed that. But that format, sort of an enduro style format where you do a social ride out to segments, like whack a 10 to 20 minute segment as hard as you can. And then ride to the next one. Uh, I, I loved that format probably more than the start line to finish line kind of format, and that was so that was good. And I'm keen to do more because I think it all adds. And 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 yeah, I, I, I get it. I don't know if I want to do the the kind of the silly long stuff in America or the Dirty River or or something like that. And I certainly would not call myself a gravel pro. Call myself a. I did the national championships this year and I was on the start line next to Alistair Brownlee and <laughs> a chap next to me I suggested I said something about and I referred to I said oh I feel like felt like a proper amateur and the chap next to me just went well you are now <laughs> it's like harsh but fair <laughs> yes okay <laughs> Would you would you consider going the other way and going right back into the minutiae of road cycling of skinny tires and taking on another hour record and maybe even because I was just looking at um just looking into it the other day and there's still the kind of it sort of seemed to wind up in about 2014 but the the split so you have the hour record now which is on the Merck style bikes and you had all the Boardman and Obrey stuff and that's the best human effort. Someone like you, with your understanding of bicycles, but also aerodynamics and also how those two things coexist and play out on a track, could you resurrect the human effort and take maybe, get a Type 108 Lotus, go phone up Chris and get his old Lotus, get back on the track, get an incredible position, use a kind of Obrey-style position with some mad bars that you'll probably get some secret Squirrel Club member to print in 3D for you. And then take it on and get 60 kilometers or 65 kilometers, you know, go absolutely mental, completely smash uh, the current benchmark, whatever it is, 55 something on the, on the Merck's hour. Yeah. So I gave, I did give this some consideration, but not the Boardman style attempt, more the, um, you know, those like recumbent speed 
pods. Yeah. That uh, I think it's quite a big scene in Australia actually for it, where you are in an enclosed. Some of them like look through a camera to see where they're going. Aubrey toyed with it a few years ago just to get a top speed one. I, I emailed a few universities that had built these. I don't even know what to call them because I don't know if you call them bikes, but like one of those, and also the the velodrome, not velodrome, the car testing track that we used for the sub seven attempt, which is a six kilometer round velodrome. So I think the speed would be too high in them for sort of conventional velodrome. That would give Ghana something to think about, <laughs> I reckon. Like clock eighty k on one of those. That'd be um, so. I think the record is about eighty kilometers for so fifty mile an hour in. Whoa. in in one of those bad boys. So I think that's something I'd consider. To be honest with you, I was so broken from my last uh, record attempt in 2021 that I am good to not do one of those <laughs> again on a 250-meter track and a conventional-ish bike. The only thing I think the only thing I'd like to get in a tunnel at some point is we had, for my factor, Hanzo, our record bike, which is a bloody good bike i had a set of handlebars made which were i think about 20 centimeters wide so enough for both your hands either side yeah three fingers of each hand either side and and enough to get you out the gate get you sat down and then you'd, you'd basically be base bar less for for your hour record because you know, they they kind of become redundant up to that point we never tested it in the tunnel and or we weren't sure if it'd be faster because all suits have been made and tested with a base bar in front of them. Um, there is a certain interaction that goes on between base bar and, and lower leg of the skin suit. So we don't know if removing the base bar would be good or bad, but you know, just hazarded a guess. Anyway, tried to get it over the line with the UCI. It didn't wash. They were very nice about it. As, as sort of sent them a picture. You have to send a picture of everything you're using. Sent them a picture of the base bar, and they came back and they were like, "Where's the rest of it?" <laughs> the rules. The rules state you have to use a stock standard base bar. And I said, "Well, this is." They said, "But it isn't." I said, "No, it is. I've just cut the ends of it off." <laughs> <laughs> and they, they were like, "There's a guy called Andre in, in the UCI who was like, uh, nice try, Alex, but no.'" <laughs> But I, yeah, I'd be keen to see if, if that, that would have done what that would. I, I heard Dan Bigham tried the same thing uh, or something similar with his bike, but um, that didn't get over the line either. So, yeah, perhaps a hypothetical hour record just done in a wind tunnel at 100 watts. And then, <laughs> you know, there's some, there's some smart people that can run the maths and say, look, oh, if we'd done all this, then that hour record would be 61 kilometers. And there you'd have your answer, and I wouldn't have to actually do the hour. No, but the eSports are a record. Oh, God, no, 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 <laughs> no. Just a hypothetical one. I, think, yeah, I, I like my indoor training, but pacing strategies don't help you much with, with that, that, kind of, uh, that kind of stuff. Reading the part of the book where um, you're trying to convince Movistar to do something different, and it's like, well, can I get an isometric chain ring? Chris Froome uses it. Yeah, Xavier was, uh, was like, it's the third year of asking, and he he's like, Alex, every year you ask this, why do you want to use these? Who who that is any good uses these chain rings? I went, Chris Froome. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was like, no, okay, fair enough. Still no, but fair enough. <laughs> like, kind of a well-played sort of thing, but still no. Um, Osymmetric chain rings, I think I liked them. I, I just the, the, the thing was they didn't help for the track 
what I found with them is when I used them, when I went on to round rings, I felt like it was the, the gain that I had using Osymmetric was then accentuated as a loss on round rings. So I was worried about, I was worried about that. Teams were very reluctant. Teams that could allow them, so Israel and Team Sky being the only two teams that I could, they were very reluctant to allow us to use them because not Team Sky Israel was reluctant. They would, they were reluctant because of the increase in possible mechanicals with them. And they were you know, quite a bit more difficult for the mechanics to use, to, to work with. Which I guess, if, you, if we're circling back to what we were talking about earlier, that shouldn't really be an, an excuse. If there is a performance gain, then how difficult they are for the mechanics should not be a a part of that question as to whether they get used or not. The problem is no one has actually found out whether they are better or not. Like, no one. And that's, and that's then tough to get over the line because you often, if you bring in something different that's potentially you know, got downsides to the table, you, you need to bring data to back it up. And you know, I, tried, I couldn't get a noticeable difference other than saying, I think theoretically they work and I feel better on them. That doesn't, you know, it doesn't wash. So it was that. I think Hutch, Michael Hutchinson tested them. He couldn't find a difference. He even tested with, he tried to test with heart rate on a treadmill and that just, that didn't show up anything. Um, it didn't show they were worse and it didn't show they were better. I do wonder, Silverstone now has created a, in the wind tunnel complex, a pedaling efficiency rig drivetrain efficiency rig. I wonder if there could be something in that because you, know, you can't whack them on an SRM bike or a, a Watt bike or anything like that because it's that, again, is a totally different like, inertial system. It has to be on the road and testing on the road gets... Maybe the body rocket system would do it. Maybe. I find stuff like that kind of mad that there isn't... That someone somewhere hasn't been smart enough to be able to work out how to decide mathematically whether or not they work we had someone come to us a guy called doug uh rider maybe yeah. doug brown jr yeah, yeah. from spring ring oh doug Ryder. yeah it? not doug no not doug right no he's, he's <laughs> a completely different guy doug brown and he's uh, from a company called it's uh written spring ring but i think you say spring ring but it's a kind of octagonal chain ring that he's developed and it comes with masses of white paper type data and the chap from train sharp saying, you know, I've tested it and it's amazing. And you just think like, could it work if you're the only person doing it? But at the same time, if there isn't lots of data around, say, osymmetric rings, then maybe it does. Maybe people aren't looking at this. But maybe people are basically a little bit biased when it comes to stuff like this. It looks like hokum to them, so they don't even begin to touch it. And actually, it just will take a smaller, more open-minded person to say, hey, look, I've done this thing and it definitely works. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's an... Like, to gather unbiased data. I mean, Osymmetric are going to, like every single company on the planet that says, our thing is the best or the fastest or the lightest. It's all subject to their own testing, which is often skewed skewed in a way that it does punch out um, the best data. Like Shimano, Campag and Tram do not want to do any testing that will show Osymmetric chain rings to be better. Osymmetric is a tiny, tiny company that has made a wonderful product. But if they were to do their own testing, one, there's the cost of it for a tiny company. Two, you know, people aren't going to believe it. It's going to go straight over sort of people's heads. I know we had it with 
Nopins would launch a new hypersonic suit and we we're like, oh, it's the fastest. And my mind, I'm like, yeah, but everyone, I had people messaging going, yeah, we know you're going to say that, but is it? And so we actually rely more on the independent testing that comes back. So we just need, that's where I hope someone like the pedaling efficiency rig in Silverstone, someone can take it all on there and maybe, maybe get an answer. They need to do it for Chris, you know, after all this time. <laughs> yeah. Is he still on them? I haven't actually looked at his chain rings recently. Last time I watched one of his YouTube videos, I'm pretty sure he was still banging that drum, as well as the anti-disc brake brigade. Well, that depends which side of the bed he wakes up on. Um, I mean, the way he he uses them for everything all the time, last time I checked, whereas Wiggins and I and Team Sky were training on round rings, but then racing on Osymmetric to get, yeah, to get the, the benefit. And I found that's where I felt the benefit if you can believe the sort of feeling. Yeah, tough one. Something else you put on Instagram recently because you had your, you got an SL8 now, right? Oh yeah, lovely bike. And you've, and you said, you know, you ran through the spec and you said da 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 and then on the chain set you're like, yeah, it's 172 and a half, but I quite like a 165 mil crank on. Yeah. Do you feel, are you on that school of thought, the, um, yeah, the shorter, because Wigo wrote, wrote some really short cranks, didn't he, for his hour record? Yes, I I found I rode one six five on my TT bike in the last year of my career. Last then last year was one seventies, one seven twos for my up to my first hour record attempt, and then went to one seventies, and then yeah, twenty twenty two I rode one six five on the TT bike only, one seventy on everything else, and I, I found you know there was no power output difference. It was either as good or as bad as I'd expect on any given day, but the big thing for me with them is when I would start getting tired and my position would start failing. It didn't fail on the 165s because at the end of the TT, I looked, you know, everything was tucked in, shoulders and everything. Position was as dialed as, as it was as it is in the first kilometre or two. So that's where I felt they gave me the biggest gain was by sort of opening up that hip angle slightly. It enabled my top half to remain in an, as aggressive position as i could as i could maintain so um adam hansen and i used to whenever we'd meet up in a race and there'd be a period of calm where we could chat about crank lengths we would chat about <laughs> crank lengths because he was like 180s uh for the leverage i'm like nah i don't think so <laughs> and no neither of us could sway each other so you and ryan dennis communicate in memes and you and adam hansen talk crank lengths yeah, it's exciting stuff. <laughs> we we really must let you go, but because you can now say, because you're not sponsored, best bike, worst bike that you had to race on? Oh, that I had to race on. The worst bike was the Factor Slick, which they then turned into one of the best TT bikes, which was the Factor Hand, which is the Factor Hanzo. Best bike, best bike. The Factor Ostro the be- that, that I raced on. I mean, I love my, sp- like my SL8. I adore. And the Athos as well. I really, it was like there's something different about just, feeling of the way they ride is something different to anything I've experienced before. But the yeah, the Factor Ostro was a was a very, very good bike. I think slightly let down by the black ink wheels, but the bike was phenomenal. I think mean, that's quite an underrated bike. Did Rob Jatellis try and get you to invest along with Chris? Uh no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Still you're a great advert for it. Oh, I think my, my hour record bikes cost them an arm and a leg. <laughs> um, Silka made the rear stays for the rear stays. Of, you can't see it because it's all painted in, but the rear stays are 3D printed titanium. So that's why Ganner and 
Dan beat me because I had a third of a 3D printed titanium bike and they had the full thing. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. It's been wicked to chat to you. And yeah, I really feel like if you ever want to come on again, just discussing our records, just sort of like <laughs> looking at me and Will through a monitor and telling us what our CDA is, we'd love to have you back. Um, but best of luck for yeah future endeavors. And I yeah, I really feel like yeah, pro cycling has not hurt. Yeah, the sharpest end of pro cycling has not heard the last from you. So excited to see what follows in the next few years. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Alex Dowsett, ladies and gentlemen, um, a big thank you again to Alex. And I feel as well it was remiss that we didn't touch upon um, Alex's charity, which is Little Bleeders. I think most people will know that Alex suffers from haemophilia, which is a condition where your blood doesn't clot, which is obviously really very potentially dangerous for cyclists, although there's lots of medication to mitigate any potential you know, serious situations. But Little Bleeders specifically is a foundation Alex set up in 2016 to encourage kids into sport because sport and haemophilia tend, because of the whole bleeding thing, to not really go together all that well. And it's also the reason, if anyone you know hadn't kind of clocked it, why Alex's book, published by Bloomsbury, by the way, um, is called Bloody Minded. All the puns. He's a, he's a punny guy. He is a punny guy. He's also a lovely guy. What did, what did you um, make of Mr. Dowsett, Will? Have you sort of chatted to him before through the medium of work? I haven't. But yeah, he, I thought he was a really good guest. He could, I think he could go on all day because he's just got so much to say. Not, not because he's, you know, can't stop talking, but I feel like he's gone through a lot. Like he obviously he's got a whole book about his life. So that tells you all you need to know. That does. Which inc- does include a lot of interesting information about him, about his experience and about other people's experience, uh, which is quite a big part, early part of the book, which obviously you hear a lot about hemophilia through following Alex Dowsett, but a lot of that stuff I didn't know. Yeah, it's pretty nuts that, yeah, effectively you're diagnosed with a condition when you're, you know, I think Alex was a toddler, so, and then the family kind of grows up with that and you want to get into sport. Alex's dad was a racing car driver. That's quite dangerous in of itself. And then he got into mountain biking and and then into cycling. And it's just probably the worst. What I would have thought if you were a doctor, you would be saying, please don't do a sport which effectively you're guaranteed to crash in. That's just the nature of cycling. I I often wonder, actually, do you reckon there's any riders who just go through their entire career just not having crashed, like a football player or a tennis player that goes through an entire career just never really getting injured? I think there must be, but you'd have to be so fortunate because you know there's the odd race where like the entire pack goes down. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. You couldn't yeah, you couldn't plan for those sort of circumstances. I feel like if you've ridden in a Grand Tour, you probably had a crash. It's true. Do you remember that picture of Chris Froome when he basically? I don't know whether he was like how naked he was, but he's naked on a Pinarello, and he's in, he looks emaciated, and he's just got loads of road rash all over him. It's a really weird picture that they decided to make a promo shot of off the back of him winning, I don't know, maybe 2016 tour or something. And it's like, bloody hell, if that is the body of a cyclist and what a cyclist body goes through, that is not for me. And he's got this inane look on his face, which sort of says, hopefully one day I end up racing with Alex Dowsett at Israel Startup Nation. I think that's what he's thinking on that picture. Yeah, he's thinking one day I will race on disc brakes and I will hate it. <laughs> I mean, that's... So just to bring it back around to Alex's book, that's the, that to me was the best thing about it is how candid 
it was. And, you know, he touched upon that at the end there with the isometric rings and um, what, you know, what the team made of it and Chris Froome made of it. And it's just really interesting, I think, to hear a pro actually... It's not it's not dirt dishing. It's nothing like that. He's not, you know, Alex isn't being vindictive. He's just telling you a lot of stuff, a lot of behind the scenes things about those conversations around kit, whether or not you can have stuff. You know, you get given a set of wheels and then you have to race on the wheels, but everyone on the team knows those wheels are really slow. And then what do you do with that? Well, one thing you do is you don't say it at the time, but you can say it in a book afterwards. And that that to me is fascinating. So, you know, I would say up until this point, my top sports biography is Gary Neville's which is just an amazing book about Manchester United. Does he not like disc brakes? He doesn't like disc brakes and he also just turns his back on grammar and spelling. It's got the most it's got a huge number of errors in the book. Maybe it was an early copy. But now I'd say that's been unseated by Bloody Minded by Alex Dowsett. I really enjoyed it because it's a big statement. Big statement, yeah. But I suggest, you know, if anyone needs a couple of gifts for someone that likes football and cycling, I'd get read by Gary Neville and then I'd also get Alex Dowse at Bloody Minded. And Gary Neville famously is a dragon now, so maybe Alex has got that in his future. He's he's famously a dragon. He's become a dragon. I don't I'm that's totally lost on me, but it's incredibly exciting. It's exciting. <laughs> he's like, he's gonna be on Dragon's Den. <laughs> what? Is he? Yeah. Goodness me, I'm glad that we did this podcast. I didn't know that. That's that's <laughs> who's he who's he replacing? I don't know. I don't follow the show enough to know. I've just seen him in a promo picture. Because Gary Neville famously invented holidays. Did you hear about that one? I didn't, know. On his uh, interview, I think that was with fellow Dragon now, Stephen Bartlett on his Diary of CEO thing. He was talking about, you know, I don't want to retire. I do a lot of mini retirements throughout the years. You know, I take a week, I retire for a week, and then I come back to work. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, you've you've, you've got to hand it to him. That's That's brilliant. I mean, oh yeah, uh, what a strategy! You can do that if you're <laughs> if a guy. He's also a really lovely guy, apparently. Sorry to just turn into football chat, but he invests. Um, he he's a kind of like he's got a huge property portfolio. He's quite a well-off bloke. I think that's why he's on the den. Yeah, but he also that would make sense, wouldn't it? But he also invests a lot of, or has given away a lot of money to homeless charities and, ho- and trying to solve homelessness, particularly in Manchester, which I think is really good. He's a real down-to-earth bloke, is our Gary. As is Alex Dalsett. As is Alex Dowsett. It always comes back to cycling eventually. Will, on that note, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'll let you get on with your day. You can go and appraise the work of your tradespeople. You can sort of say things um, which they won't really know what you're talking about and they'll look at you, but they'll have to sort of go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We probably should be using wider brushes. You're correct, Mr. Strixon. Yes, because we're on your time. Um, So that'll be fun for you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it marvellous right until the next time goodbye everyone cheers don't forget that the cyclist magazine podcast isn't just a podcast the clue is in the magazine bit we were a magazine first and we still are we're a monthly magazine and right now you can subscribe for three issues for five pounds just check out cyclist.co.uk and there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet which is a very very light gilet which apparently i know i've got the jacket version and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version. So it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40K in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. 
I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now.